Hi, I'm Josh Gandy, and you're listening to No Proof. This podcast is an extension of my journey to discover closeness to myself and the outside world. Through mindfulness, the person I'm becoming since sobriety, and the healthy choices I'm learning about along the way. In each episode, I'll be speaking with someone with ties to sobriety, the bar and restaurant industry, wellness, recovery, or all of the above. There's no proof like the present. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to No Proof, uh, the story of sobriety with and without the uh, hospitality industry. Today, I'm joined by Heidi Bush, the author of Relationship Ready, How I Stopped Fucking Randos and Started Cupcaking. My soulmate can be found at Heidi B. Coaching on Instagram or HeidiBCoaching.com. Heidi, I'm super excited to chat with you today because you bring like a level of excitability with this kind of talk that, I, that I've yet to encounter and I think it's just, it's really great as far as like a learning aspect goes for people of like, you know, kind of how to get in tune with themselves and then kind of, they feel like they want to maybe match your energy and, uh, you know, getting off the fence of how they feel with their own relationships or just the way that it takes to, to kind of look internally. But I'm really excited to chat with you and I can't thank you enough for joining me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing your platform with me. I love talking about sobriety. I also love talking about the book. Um, you know, for me, it's like, I had to get sober in order to do the work that I outlined in the book. Um, not everyone has to do that, but like, I wouldn't have had a shot at having any relationships in my life. Um, if I hadn't gotten sober first, you know, but I mean, just to, we can talk about that piece of it, but, um, you know, when I, when I, I found myself at about 18 months or 24 months sober and I had like gotten like above board on a lot of stuff, you know, I was like showing up to work on time. I don't drink anymore. I don't do drugs anymore. I forward my mail when I move, which was like a huge feat for me. <laughs> Did you do that at all? In the drinking days, I was like, oh, good luck finding me collectors. I'll just be moving. I mean, I moved so much in the drinking days. So it was like, anyway, it was like a huge deal to be able to forward my mail when I moved at six months sober. And I really only had like two vices left around 24 to 18. I mean, I thought I only had about two vices left around that time. One of them was parking illegally. Like I just could not let go of parking in dangerously. Um, and one of them was fucking randos. You know, I really felt like I do what I want. I'm doing all this other good stuff. I'm living my life in this like great above board way. And like, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, you know, in my thirties, I've seen sex in the city. I, I feel sexually empowered and I'm going to do what I want when it comes to sex. And so, you know, I started, I found myself kind of over and over again, either getting involved with men who are unavailable or, um, like making arrangements with guy with guys, you know? And so the last one that kind of like really had me at rock bottom and willing to do work around love dating relationship stuff um, was I had dated this guy. I was talking to this guy who had a girlfriend. He and I were like, we had made an arrangement just like get together and get down. Um, and after a couple months, like he broke up with his girlfriend and I thought like, oh, this is great. Like I'm going to be, this guy's a catch. I'm going to be his girlfriend now. Right. Which whatever, <laughs> whatever about that. Um, and, you know, and at one stage he turned to me and he was like, you know, do you think we could do something besides just like get down? You know, could we like go to dinner and, and, and then get down? Or could we like go see a movie and then get down? And I looked at him like, we could, but like, that would be dating. And he was like, I was clear with you from the beginning. I do not want to date you. And in that moment, like the bottom really fell out for me. And I realized like, wow, even if six months prior, I had been really feeling empowered about this decision around what I was going to do with him. Um, in that moment, I'd been lying to myself because I really had been hoping that he was going to like 
dump her, choose me. And we were going to like run off into the sunset together. And, um, and so I finally was in enough pain to go, all right, I have to do something differently when it comes to dating. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is like, look, if you're having a great time fucking randos, keep doing it, right? If it's working for you, if you love it, if it really honors what's true for you, do it because it's not, the book is not a space for judgment, but it's about like, when you're ready to do something different and like, you don't know how to do anything different then now this book's for you, right? Like swiping left and swiping right were the only tools I had in my toolkit at that moment. And like, they were not um, enough to get me to a place where I could find like a sustainable long-term relationship. I had to develop some other behaviors and some other tools. And that's the stuff that's in the book. What's that, um, what's that transfer of empowerment feel like, you know, when it goes from, you know, this is like, my body, my use of how I, I want to, you know, use that time and then mm-hmm. kind of capturing it in, you know, what would be a one-on-one relationship. Is that something that can transfer? Or is it something that should be viewed entirely different? That's such an interesting question. No one has ever asked me that before. I mean, I think actually the process of transformation was very painful. Um, and that was true for me in terms of getting sober. It was true for me in terms of relationships. Almost every kind of transformation I've experienced in my life has been challenging, difficult, painful. And in terms of like how it, how I moved. So it was like, I did feel really empowered. And then I felt a lot of pain. And then I did, honestly, I ended up doing a year's worth of work around this stuff. It doesn't take everyone that long. I feel like I'm particularly stubborn. (laughs) I was dragging my feet at every turn. Like I really didn't, I mean, it was just like I 51% wanted to do this stuff. Um, And so I, you know, I did it really slowly, but by the time the year was over, I had really kind of stepped into a new version of myself. And one of the things that was interesting is that while I was doing it and what I suggest to my clients, is like, look, while you're doing this work, why don't you like chill on the dating, stop talking to people you're attracted to, you know, like chill out on all that stuff so you can focus on this. And at the time I was like, oh my God, I'm going to miss so many opportunities. They're like, all these guys kind of barking at my tree right now. I look so hot these days, whatever. Um, And a girlfriend of mine was like, you know, when you're done with this work, you may not even give a shit about those guys. Like they're not even going to be in the same league as you are when you're done with this. Like you're going to be a completely different person. And that really was true. By the time I was finished, I was looking back on, you know, some of those guys I'd been talking to a year earlier. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not even attracted to that guy. Or, oh my God, he doesn't even have anything that's on my ideals list of like what I'm really looking for. Um, And that, so that happened for me when it came to love dating relationships. And it also happened for me in terms of sobriety. There were a lot of things that I let go uh, that when I got sober, I was like, there's no way, how will I ever, how will I ever get married again sober? How will I ever go to a Christmas sober? How will I ever, ever go to a restaurant sober? Like, how will I do that? What does like you do it cheaper, by the way, it's like so much more affordable. You can eat out all the time. Um, anyway, I, I really thought like I was going to lose or miss out on all these experiences only to discover that the transformation I'd encountered had given me an entirely new set of experiences to have that, that were really much more aligned with um, who I was and like what my kind of soul's purpose is, is about. I think that's amazing to hear. And it really touches on something that I brought up on the show a couple of times of just like in the early days of my sobriety, you know, the, all of the excuses and plans that I was making oh. was for a version of myself that didn't exist yet. So yeah. I can totally relate to that because by the time that those times and those like quote unquote excuses show up you're like what was I thinking and the thing is like the the person that's saying that right now wasn't thinking like that person hadn't been uh created yet one thing that's really fascinating to me about this is you know you do so much work about relationships which is like um two or more people essentially Mm -hmm. um but what's really important is the work that you do individually Mm -hmm. so 
what, how do you start some of that work? What are some of the things that people could be thinking about or identifying yeah. or taking notes on, on to kind of like take that pause and internalize their inventory, look at themselves and see like, yeah. what do I need to be ready to go jump into yeah. a relationship? Oh my gosh. I think this is a great question. First of all, I think, honestly, I think anyone who's single right now, look, this summer is going to be lit. If you are, I mean, I'm, I'm married. I'm actually, today is my third wedding anniversary. I'm very happy. I'm happily married. Is it really? I'm excited. Yes. Yeah. Tomorrow's my fourth <laughs> wedding anniversary. Oh my God. That's so wild. <laughs> that's weird. Congratulations that's to you. Uh, congratulations to you. <laughs> you know, but I feel like, you know, if you are out there and you are single, this summer is going to be crazy. It's just, that's all there is to it. Right. Because everyone's been cooped up. Everyone's wax wax back on the apps. They're ready to go. So I would just say before you kind of dip your toe into the frenzy of what's happening, take a minute, just like take a, take a beat to figure out, to ask yourself, okay, what do I really want? even just this season, right? Like sometimes we think we have to plan ahead forever. You know, do I want to be in a long-term relationship? Do I want this? But it's like, okay, just for this summer, do I want to take this summer and just like have some fun and do some like non-committal dating? And if that's a yes for you, then just lean into that and see if you can get empowered around that and feel comfortable with it and feel excited about it. Um, but if you're also, but you know, on the other hand, if you're like, no, this season I'm looking, I've been through COVID single, I'm looking for a person, you know, then, okay. If you are looking for a person, there are some things you can do to date differently. One of those things I always suggest is to make an ideals list. What are you really looking for? And it's really like an, um, an exercise in unlimited thinking, right? Because, and actually we can do this for our partnerships as well. So even if you're in a long-term relationship, you can look at your relationship and go, what would be ideal for my relationship? Okay, you know, I want a relationship that's spontaneous, that's fun, that is adventurous, that we hike every weekend. That's not for me, but for some people it is, right? And then you look at that list of ideals and you start to use it as for, in two ways. The first way you use it is as kind of a benchmark for the people that you're encountering. Okay, do these people meet these standards that I've set in an objective sense? And then the other way that you use it is you use it on your, you turn it on yourself. Okay. If I want my partnership to be spontaneous, am I spontaneous? If I want my partnership to be adventurous, am I adventurous? Am I, you know, did I go rent some hiking boots or something? <laughs> rent hiking boots, snowshoes. I don't know. Oh my God. You know what I mean? Right. So did I, am I adventurous? Am I embodying these values that I would like as an ideal in my partnership or in my person? I think that's really great. And that's uh, that's something you don't really hear a lot either. It's like, am I matching what my wants and, and needs are from that? Yeah. And in a real like logistic sense, that makes that that's a great place to be, right? Because if you are somebody who like loves snowboarding and you're spending all of your time in uh, I don't know, like in the movie theater, you're not going to find a snowboarder, right? So like in order to find somebody who has those shared values, we need to be doing those, those activities. You know, it's like, it's just like, like logistically just like increases your odds of meeting that person, you know? Mm -hmm. That's a really great point. Well, Heidi, I want to back up a little bit um, mm -hmm. to, to kind of understand like where this book came from. Was this mm -hmm. something that you had kind of been thinking about through, you know, your ups and downs with, uh, you know, getting sober and hitting these rock bottoms that you're talking about? Or do you kind of feel like this is a book that just kind of like exploded out of those circumstances? Like how much of like your past self did you pull into writing this book? You know, it's really interesting because the book is about half, it's like half memoir and half how-to. And so I put like all my shit on blast in this book. So it's a, it's a lot of like my worst decisions, some of the worst stuff I did. I have, I do have an entire chapter dedicated to my sobriety story, you know, and I will tell you, like I was writing this chapter about, I was writing a chapter about, I had 
our story, it was, it's one of the several stories in the memoir portion about this guy. I had, I'd known him in high school. I had just really bottomed out with alcohol um, right after college. My mom had actually come to the University of Pittsburgh. She was like, you cannot live here anymore. You are coming home with me. She's 22 years sober today. And at that stage, she was probably six years sober. She and a woman that she, she had done traditional um, kind of AA, gone the AA route. So she and a woman she sponsored drove from Iowa to Pittsburgh to come pick my drunk ass up and bring me home to Iowa. Now I thought for sure, like, well, I'm going to rehab, right? There's no world in which like, this is not over the end game or whatever, but she very much, I don't know if she was like working a great Al-Anon program or whatever, but she was just like, okay, you live here now. You know, I didn't end up going to rehab anyway, because I was of where I was living, I was close to the university of Iowa. And so like the second weekend I was home, I kind of road tripped up there and went out and partied with people I knew there. And I ran into, ran into, I hooked up with a guy that I knew from high school and, you know, we're like laying around at four in the morning and he's like, um, you know, I live in Denver now. And if you lived in Denver, I'd make you breakfast. And I'm like, well, don't threaten me with a good time. And sure enough, two weeks later, I show up at his place in Denver with like everything I own in my car because I wasn't going to stay in Iowa anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, knock, 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 here I am. You know, his roommate's like, what is going on? Like, it was just, you know, it was wild. And I'm like writing that story. And I'm like, oh my God, what would my dad think? What, you know, what's my family going to think? But the reality was um, like this message of like sharing all of the mess that I had and the stuff that I did to change the way that I dated. It's so important for me because it's like when I was going through it, it felt so dark, so isolating, so, um, really frustrating and devastating because people around me were getting it right. There were women my age that I knew that were like finding partners who could hold space for them and that they could hold space for and that they weren't abandoning each other. And like, they were starting to have families and like, and I just, I kept getting it wrong and it felt, it was so painful. Um, and so really the, the reason that I was willing to like put all my shit on blast is that like, I want you to know that if you're out there struggling with love dating relationship stuff, you're not alone, you know, and that there's another way. And that there may be a lot of other ways, but this is one way that worked for me and that I hope it will work for you, you know? So, um, so as far as, I'm not entirely sure that that really gets to the question you were asking, but um, I did, let's say I got sober in 2010. I did this work in 2012, 2000. Oh wait, sorry. I got sober in 2011. Oop, my sobriety date's 9, 10, 11. I'm always really grateful that that's the date because it's super easy to remember. <laughs> Um, I got sober in 2011 and I did this work for, uh, I ran around for two years. So 2013, 2014 is when I did this work. Um, and I wrote the book in 2018 because I was like working a corporate job. I was a crime analyst for the city of Portland, which I thought was going to be a lot of like blue lights and I'd seen a lot of CSI. So I really thought it was going to be like very, very much like CSI. And it is very much like living in an Excel spreadsheet. So it's not the same. <laughs> Um, and I was, you know, doing data entry and like doing data analysis. And I'm like, God, I just I had this really powerful experience, this really transformative experience around how, around my beliefs around love and the accessibility of love to me. And I think other women need this and they might not be lucky enough to be in recovery. So part of the reason that I had access to these tools to change my thinking around love dating relationships was because of my, um, participation in 12-step recovery and the people that I knew there. Um, and so I'm like, there are women who might need this. And I think I just got to go ahead and write it, even if it means like, here's the stupidest stuff I did. <laughs> What's been some of the feedback from that, from you know anyone that you've coached or, or read the book? Like how helpful has that been kind of like seeing, uh, you, you know, your lived life? 
Gosh, well, you know, I really do believe that we're uniquely qualified to help people through the experiences that we have. That's something that I have internalized that I really take to heart. And it's why I share so openly and candidly um, about my experiences, both in sobriety and love dating relationships. It's like candor is really one of the pillars of my business. Uh, to be honest, it warms my heart. I mean, it's like, first of all, anytime anyone reads a book, even if I, whether I send it, you a free copy or you like actually buy it, it's like, oh my God, somebody read it. Holy shit. You know, <laughs> Because, you know, everyone's busy and they're, they're, we all have so many like things to do. So anytime that somebody reaches out and let, lets me know that they read it, I just, I, my heart explodes. But like, you know, recently one of my clients got engaged. Um, she did the work that, you know, I took her through this work. We did it. She started dating a guy afterwards. He was the guy. She just sent me their engagement video. And I like, die, you know, I died. There's part of me that's like, it's just, it's so incredible because I mean, I know it works because it worked for me, but to be able to kind of shepherd somebody else through it to really just be a guide the reality is like my clients are the ones doing the work you know i'm offering some suggestions i'm giving some framework um i'm offering guidance but like they're the ones that are really going through that dark night of the soul that really painful transformation who are willing to stick it out and do it and so it's like it's just incredible to me like to see lives change because of just like some simple tweaks around how we choose partners and some new awareness around what our patterns are it's it's beyond what are some of the, the pillars that you found through sobriety that you kind of bring into this relationship dating um, coaching? Like, like what are some yeah. like foundational things that kind of stuck with you that you kind of like employ, employ in through everything? Yeah, I mean, candor is one of them. Um, and with candor, I think is honesty and really just starting to understand the difference or just starting to like understand what it means to be honest with myself. I think I was always, even in my drinking days, I was pretty good at being honest with other people. There were some small lies that I told, but nothing that ever got me in big trouble. Um, but I was really, it was really tough to get honest with myself. So that's a big one. Um, one of the gifts of sobriety that I've gotten is just the, and I think this, this is something I teach as well. It's like, we're allowed to change our minds, which I don't know about you, but like in the drinking days and in my teenage years, it's like if, if Heidi B decided something was gonna be this way, this is what we are doing. We are powering through. We are bulldozing. We don't give a shit if it does. We, this is like single track mind. Uh, and so like, what a gift to go to, you know, to really learn in sobriety. Like I'm allowed to test something out. And then I'm allowed like a week later. It doesn't even have to be a week, but like even seven days later, I can say, I tried this and it's not for me. You know, I just, I had never given myself the permission to change my mind. I, I, when I, when I looked back on my inventory of relationships or on my patterns of dating, I discovered that like, I stayed way longer than I needed to. And a lot of like the writing was on the wall, probably from like day one, you know, but it was like, I had decided this was going to be my person. This was going to be how it's going to be. Um, so I think I talk a lot about kind of thinking of dating as information gathering and kind of constantly assessing and going, do I need to change my mind here? And really allowing, encouraging women, especially, I, I, I can only speak for myself, I guess I will say, but like, I think as a woman in this culture that we live in, I have definitely received the messaging of like, oh, why don't you just look on the bright side? Is there a silver lining here? Can you be generous and kind and give this person a second, third, fourth, 10th, 11th, 50th, 100th chance, right? So I really had to um, kind of learn how to go, I'm not giving second, you know, I'm, I'm not giving third chances. I'm pretty good at giving first and second chances, but the third chances is that's it. And it's okay for me to change my mind. It doesn't make me a bitch to change my mind, right? So a lot of, I would say those are two things, the discussion, candor and honesty, the ability to change our mind. And I guess also the third thing for me really is, um, this is in every area of my life. I've Recovery has given me the ability to pause when I'm agitated. 
Um, I feel like my entire life I have been an overthinker. So with that kind of overthinking constant, you know, the squirrel mind comes the, especially as we get older and have more resources at our disposal, comes the behavior of like fixing, 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 you know, or like, oh my God, I sent that text message. Do you, did they read it the wrong way? Do I need to send 50 more to clarify? <laughs> yes, I have done that, right? And in sobriety, I no longer have to do that. If I send a message that I think somebody has misunderstood, I usually go, okay, especially, and now I'm getting better at identifying it, right? When the urge is to send 25 follow-up messages, I'm like, oh, that's, something is distorted here. I need to step back. I need to put my phone away. Maybe I need to turn it off and go for a walk or something, just like step away from the phone, you know? Um, and, and so I've learned how to pause when agitated. And I, it's so funny because when I first got sober, I was working with a woman. I also um, found uh, recovery through 12 step. And when I first got sober, I had a sponsor who was like, you know, Heidi, you are a thousand miles a minute. And I know that the recovery literature talks about like getting into action in order to kind of get out of the brainstorm that you're the shitstorm that you're in. She's like, but you, for you pausing would be an action. So I want you to consider pausing as an action. And I'm like, that is helpful. I will do that. You know, so I got a lot of practice learning how to pause. So I think those are three things that are really pillars around the work that I use every day in my own life. And, um, the work that I, that I end up doing a lot with women, um, who want to work on the love dating relationship stuff. That's super interesting. It kind of reminds me of like the way that I kind of think about, um, you know, my drinking mind versus my sober mind. And a lot of it kind of like that fictional versus non-fictional storytelling mm -hmm. that you tell yourself and the oh. way that you try to uh, put yourself out there for others, you know, mm -hmm. wanting to be so deeply in control of the story that you're telling, whether or not that's true or not. Uh, yeah. you know, and you were talking about that and sticking that out through relationships that should have maybe ended before. Uh, and that's everything of like, you know, lying about how many drinks you had or something like oh. that. It's just like those little moments of like, you want so badly to be in control, even yeah. though you yourself know that you're not being like truthful in some of those moments. Oh my gosh. And exactly like my, you know, I am married. I'm celebrating my third wedding anniversary today, but I have a previous marriage and my first marriage um, to my ex-husband, I had met him in this like whirlwind trip. He was Irish and I met him on a trip to Ireland and it was a whirlwind and we got married really quickly. And I knew, I mean, I knew on the day we got married, like, what the fuck am I doing here? Well, and actually I remember I wore a white suit from Banana Republic. I was at the mall picking it up um, because it had been tailored. My mom was with me and I remember thinking like, oh my God, why is my mom not putting the kibosh on this. Like, what is she, what mom, come on, like help me, you know? Um, and I went ahead and got married, but um, you know, I stuck that out for a long time, even though I knew in my heart it wasn't right because I just was obsessed with the idea of like this whirlwind romance. I liked the story of like, oh, we met and we got, you know, we met and got married within six months and we, you know, globe trot and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, it was so painful to try to keep up to keep both of those things going. It's like really compare my reality to the narrative that I was telling everyone and that I desperately wanted to be true. And eventually I had to honor my own truth because I was gonna die. I mean, I was just like, I was miserable. I was gonna die if I stayed in that marriage, you know? So um, because of my own misery, not because of, you know, it wasn't dangerous in that way, but I was just so miserable, you know? Um, so yeah, the, the, um, the desire to have people see us how we'd like us how we'd like them to see us that pride is really um has been something that i have worked that i continue to work to set aside you know <laughs> that's such a parallel to sobriety too and like the the drinking self of like i remember times looking back where i was just kind of like why isn't anybody saying anything like shouldn't somebody mm -hmm. like i kind of want somebody to like i want somebody to tell me to stop because i don't want to yes. have to be the one to tell myself we need to cut it out 
that's the mm -hmm. end like where are all of these people and then it's not until like you know you removed from that self you're kind of seeing like i always had to be the one to put the kibosh on it. i always had to be the one mm -hmm. to say this is enough and this is what we have to do to move forward which is incredibly frustrating but it's what you need <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's actually making me think of two things. I remember when I got sober, so I was out the night, nine, let's see, I got sober 9, 10, 11. So 9, 9, 11, I was out with a girlfriend. We were here in Portland. We were like grabbing, uh, we were having drinks at the the Sweet Hereafter, which is a bar in Southeast Portland. And then we, we picked up a guy and he was like, oh, let's order pizza at my house. And like, we legitimately were gonna go order pizza with him. We were not like gonna go have a threesome with him or anything. We went to his house to order pizza. The pizza never arrived. Like it was like, oh God, whatever. She and I walked home drunk, whatever. Whatever. And honestly, it was not my worst night out. Like by far, by far and away, it was not my worst night out. Um, but I woke up on the morning of 9, 10, 11, and I just had this moment of clarity of like, I am either going to get sober or I'm going to die. I'm going to drink myself to death. Now, my mom at that stage, like I said, she's 22 years sober today. So she was well into sobriety. Um, but my dad drank himself to death um, uh, when I was 28. So I didn't get sober till I was 31. So three years between his um, death and my own sobriety. And this was around that. So, you know, I wake up that morning and I'm like, oh my God, you know, either there are really only two options here. And having watched my dad drink himself to death, one of the most poignant pieces of that was that like, he always kind of had it together until the last couple of years that he didn't. And when we went to his house, I tell his story because it's a large part of mine. Um, in his last days of alcoholism, his last years of alcoholism, he really did become a typical maintenance drinker where he did require alcohol like every two hour, hour every two hours, or else he would have DTs, withdrawals, that stuff. So he was really chained to the bottle in his end of days. And for a long time, my drinking didn't look like his drinking. And so I thought like, well, I'm not, he's an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. So that's fine. Um, and when we cleaned out his house um, after he died, I remember going to his place and because he was chained to the bottle, he would often be up at night, sitting at our kitchen table, drinking vodka on the rocks and smoking cigarettes. And so when I walked into the kitchen, I looked at the table and I looked where he used to sit and he had actually worn away the varnish on the table in the shape of his forearms, because that's where he would just sit all day, all day and all night. And that image stuck with me. So the morning of 9, 10, 11, 11 I'm like, I'm either going to get sober or I'm going to drink myself to death. And to be honest, it was so ugly to watch that happen to somebody that I loved. I would actually be luckier to like die in a drunk car wreck, to like go home with the wrong person and get stabbed. And when I started to think about like what my future potential outcomes were, I was like, oh shit, like I'm fucked, you know? So that was of course at 8 a.m. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'm gonna be done. This is it. And then like by 1130, I'm like, I mean, I might've overcorrected. This is this is not this big of a deal. Like, I'm not really sure about this, you know, because at the time I was divorced, um, but I was working a PhD program. I had a car. There were a lot of things still kind of happening. They weren't all going great, but there were still things happening in my life. Um, so, you know, the first couple of days, I really just white knuckled it despite my brain, you know, telling me like, you've overcorrected, this is dumb. And honestly, for the first probably 18 months of my sobriety, I had that internal debate all the time. Have I overcorrected? Do I really need to be doing this? And I remember just wishing, God damn it, I wish somebody would just tell me like, you're fucked, you're an alcoholic, you cannot drink anymore. That would make this so much easier. <laughs> um, but you know, everybody that I encountered in 12 step recovery basically said like, look, you have to decide this for yourself. No one here is gonna diagnose you. You have to decide whether or not, whether or not you drink in a way that you think is normal, whether or not, you know, this is really working for you. And, you know, eventually I came to a place where I'm like, you know, even if I've overcorrected, this is a pretty good life I'm living. And so I'm just going to kind of set it, 
I'm just going to stop freaking out about it anymore, you know, but it took a long time to get there. And I like to share that because there are some people that get sober with a ton of clarity. Like they've hit the, you know, they've hit the rock bottom. They are clear. They cannot do it. Um, but there are some of us that get sober that, that spend a lot of time kind of hemming and hawing over it. And I do feel really lucky that in all of that great debate, I did not find it necessary to pick up a drink. So just despite like not being sure, I was able to stay physically sober regardless because I was willing to kind of engage in the community and like just kind of take suggestion even when I didn't really like it. I can, I definitely feel that. I, um, you know, in the beginning of my sobriety, it was, I was kind of looking at it like, you know, maybe down the line, uh, you know, 10 years from now, maybe I'll mm -hmm. introduce it back into my life. And that comes mm -hmm. back to like what I was saying earlier is like making excuses and telling stories for a version of myself that didn't exist yet. Because yeah. now I'm at a point where, you know, I'm about in October, I'll be celebrating four years sober. Ah. And like, now I get to this point where I'm just like, the further I get away from it, mm -hmm. the longer I want to increase that distance. Like, yes. because I'm so far removed from it, I'm no longer that person that's, as you put it, like I'm hemming and hawing. I'm just like, I'm like, this is me. This is an absolute. Yeah. And I would be an insane person to ever <laughs> want to go back to any version of that. I know it's so wild. And you know, it's honestly, it's so cliche, but it's like when we can use kind of those, that, that like phrase of like one day at a time, like if I can just do today sober, it's fine. If I, I personally think it's fine to use the mental trick of like, look, you can drink next week or we can consider you drinking next week when next week comes. Free but how about today? <laughs> yeah, you know, like how about today? We just do today. Just do today. And it's like sometimes when you get in that mindset and you just keep doing today sober, suddenly it's been 5,000 days or whatever. And you're like, oh my God, I've been doing today sober just for 5,000 days. And like, and now I'm a new version of myself that really doesn't care whether or not I have uh, whipped cream flavored vodka. I can remember, I mean, I feel like that really dates me, but that was like, when I got sober, all of these like new flavored vodkas were coming out. And I remember being like, oh my God, I missed out on this. Or I missed out on this. I should go back out. Actually, I'll never forget. My mom gave me some book that was not like 12 step related. And it was about um, drinking and alcoholism or whatever. And in the book, the guy's describing like the combination of cocaine and beer to like you know, balance out everything. And I like, called my mom and I'm like, maybe seven or eight days sober. And I'm like, mom, this book, this guy's talking about doing cocaine and, and beer. And like, you know, honestly, I never did that. Maybe I should go out and try that before I like really commit to getting sober. She's like, oh my God, put the book down. She's like, throw it away. <laughs> because I just really, you know, it's like, I really could get myself pretty wound up easily in those early days about what I might be missing out on. And, you know, what I got, what I got to was a place of just going like, look today, no matter what happens, if I can just get through the day sober, it's a W in my win column. It, if everything else went sideways, that's fine. I got through the day sober and kind of setting the bar that low for myself really, really helped. <laughs> so jumping from that person to um, the you now, who were you, um, you know, in the relationship that is now your marriage? Who was who that Heidi who entered that? Yeah, I mean, that Heidi is somebody, oh my gosh, you know, here's one of my favorite things or one of my favorite analogies when it comes to drinking and alcoholism and recovery and healing. You know, as a young person, I was very tightly wound, very much a type A, goody two-shoes, straight A student, because I think in large part because my parents' alcoholism was really coming off the rails at that stage. So I did a pretty typical thing, which was like, I'm never going to drink I'm never going to drink like them. Um, I'm going to do straight A's. I'll get all the accolades so that I will not have this alcoholic life that they have. Although they did a very good job with what they had, you know, whatever. I, I like to give them some credit because a lot of credit because they did the best they could with what they had. But because I was so tightly wound and because I, 
and I really was like a fearful kid too. Like my, I like to think about it, like in the social media parlance of like my Instagram filter was permanently on fear. Like I just viewed the world with fear, trepidation, and the desire to control everything so that it would all be okay. And that made me, like I said, pretty tightly wound. So when I had my first drink at 15, I needed it. First of all, it was like, oh my God, I can finally relax. And it was also as if somebody had put the Instagram filter to like subtle. I don't know if you ever play around with those, but this subtle Instagram filter is like the very first one. It's barely on, just like smooths out the edges a little bit. You, you still look like yourself, you know, <laughs> whatever. And so it's like, so once I found the only two things that really ever changed the Instagram filter of my life from fear and control and desire to control to huh, subtle was alcohol um, and ha recovery, have been alcohol and recovery. And, you know, alcohol worked until it stopped working and that sucked. And then early recovery was very much like the biggest trust exercise of my life. And I think it is the biggest kind of tr like trust exercise that we ask of people, right? Because in early sobriety, it's like, well, alcohol used to work and now it doesn't. And now I'm, people in recovery or people in sober communities are going to ask you to re refrain from using your only tool, alcohol, and trust that if you stay sober long enough, you'll develop some other tools, whether that's meditation, prayer, exercise, routine, uh, whatever, right? You'll therapy, whatever those tools are. And if you just trust us and stay physically sober long enough to like really get into these other tools, you will get your filter back. You know, you will find a way to soften the edges. It is by far the most challenging thing that we ask of people. I, I It's the most challenging thing I've ever done. Um, and it is truly the biggest leap of faith I've ever taken to set aside this thing that had worked, stopped working, and to trust these people that were telling me there were some other things that were going to work, that I wasn't going to have to shop and fucking eat my way through life in order to feel the edges soften, that there would be these other tools too. Um, and so, you know, by using all of those tools, developing a spiritual path, um, I, I did a lot of distance running. I feel like there was, there were times where trail running was healing for me. It ended up being something that I set aside because of my compulsive and extreme nature. Um, uh, you know, um, I have picked up therapy a lot, you know, on and off through my recovery. And all of those things have allowed me to come to my relationship as a woman who is healing, right? So it's like, look, these old wounds that I have, the stuff I drink over, like, I don't know if they're ever really gonna, I don't know if they're ever really gonna toughen up, right? But I know that they are healing. And I think it's important, especially in the relationship space, there's often this idea of like, oh, you have to be fully healed before you can move into a healthy relationship. And like, I don't think that's true. I think that you need to be aware of your wounds. You have to know how they manifest. You have to know how you behave because of them. And you have to be actively working on healing them. But you can be doing that when you have that awareness, which for me, sobriety is kind of a prerequisite for all of that, um, you know, you can be healing and in your relationship and show up as a whole person. And so, you know, that's who I am today. You know, when I, when I was out there ripping and running, I mean, I just was anxiety, fear, you know, full of anxiety, full of fear. Nothing was sustainable for me because I had some abandonment wound stuff that always meant that new was better. Any new attention was better than old attention. And so nothing was sustainable in my life, you know? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it's all about, you know, you, you mentioned honesty a ton. And I think it's important to kind of bring that honesty to the relationship as well. It, you know, it sounds like at least like opening up and having the other half be open and understanding to who you are and where you're at at this time. And that kind of leads me to my next question is just like, what's happening in people's lives that uh, then become your client? Like what, like, like what are some of the questions people could be asking themselves or kind of looking around or what apps do they have open that could help lead them yeah. to you? 
Yeah. Well, actually right now I run a couple of programs. So I have a group coaching program for single women who are navigating the dating apps. And that's for, it's actually a really accessible program. I love it because we have four, we have a weekly zoom meeting. You get a monthly one-on-one session with me. Uh, you get access to my online course for free and you get a little, a, a monthly guest speaker. So there's like a ton of content that's wrapped up in that. And that is for women who maybe have already done some of this work around pattern identification or who are really just kind of struggling to get back to get back into dating. You know, I have actually worked with a lot of clients that are like, oh, I'm really busy and I don't have time for this bullshit of like the constant messaging or like, you know, whatever. So it's honestly just a group, it's really like just a community to help each other go, okay, look, if you're prioritizing, if finding a relationship is a priority for you in this season, here's how we're gonna get you there. And we're all gonna cheer you on and help you navigate these apps or make these decisions. Because that's the other thing, aside from kind of getting into the action of, of dating, there also comes this piece of a lot of my clients struggle with like, how do I know I'm making the right decision when I'm telling this guy we're done? You know, and a lot of that comes back to honesty, trusting ourselves, rebuilding our integrity, learning to just trust that like there are no wrong decisions, that if you're, if you swipe left on somebody and you're really supposed to be with them, they'll come back into your, you know, the universe will find a way to deliver them to you. So that's one way, you know, so one of the, that's one way. This, the other way that, or the other place that people get to when they work with me, usually my one-on-one clients are in a little bit of a darker place, which is that they are, t- they've tried over and over again. They're, you know, every time they find somebody like this guy's going to be different. And then like six months in, it's the same guy wearing a different jacket. You know what I mean? Um, I do only work with women. So sorry, sorry guys, but I'm sure there's something out there for men. Um, but, uh, those one-on-one clients are at a place where really it's kind of similar to, you know, hitting rock bottom where they're tired of doing things the way they've been doing them. And they're really willing to go on the journey, the transformative journey. They're kind of understanding that it's going to be painful, but it's probably, I mean, it's not going to be that much more painful than what they're currently doing. Um, so yeah, so, um, the longer, the one-on-one coaching journey is a longer journey. It's about a 12 week transformation is usually I can get people through it in about that time. And it is for somebody who's like, okay, I'm really ready to put the pause on dating to do some deep inner work, um, and to come out the other side, a different woman who wants different things out of her life. Uh, the group coaching concept is really for people who have maybe already done some of that work and are just looking for a little extra, um, love and support along the way. Awesome. And, uh, one final question. Mm-hmm. What is cupcaking? <laughs> I love that. It was bold to put it in the title. And honestly, I think it was a bolder choice to put cupcaking in the title than it was to put the, the uncensored F word in there. Um, cupcaking is that phase. It's very similar to the honeymoon phase, but it's just like honeymoon phase with a little zhuzh, you know, like cupcaking is that when you first start dating somebody, this is the best example I can give. When you first start dating somebody and you've been staying at their place, but then you stay at their place on a work night. This is pre-pandemic, of course. This is not when you can work from home. You have to go to work. So you wake up at six or whatever, and you're like, God damn it, I have to go into work today. This is not fair. All I want to do is spend time with my person. I just want to be in their arms. I want us to make breakfast together. I want us to go on a lovely stroll this morning. I want us to have a, a little noon get-down session. Like my boss should understand that I require federally mandated cupcaking leave so I can just like be in bed with my person. So anyway, being that's part of cupcaking. Cupcaking is really like when you're just like so into your person, you don't care whether it's like going grocery shopping together. You don't want to have to go to work. You want to just do, spend all your time with them. So it's just a little update on uh, the honeymoon phase. I think that's incredible. More cupcaking <laughs> for everybody. 
Yes. Well, Heidi, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, congrats oh, on your you. sobriety. Congrats on your anniversary today. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I'll make oh, sure gosh. to throw all the, the links to the website, to your Instagram and the notes for the show. This has truly been great. And I can't thank you enough for joining me. Ah, you're so welcome. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. That's no proof. Thank you for listening. And if you liked what you heard or are interested to hear more, make sure to like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Music was written and recorded by my brother Kyle, right here in Columbus, Ohio. To pick up an NA enamel pen and other great barware, head to moverandshakerco.com. More info and other shows like the Focus on Health podcast with Alex Jump can be found at fohealth.org. That's focusonhealth.org.